0: team. Welcome to episode 84 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. This is a part two of our Q&A series, so be sure to listen to part one in episode 83. As we mentioned in part one, the NDP team hosted the first ever practice ownership program at the Henman Dental Meeting in Atlanta. We filled the room with dental students, residents, associates, and current practice owners for a full day of educational and networking session. As we said, they asked some great questions. And if you haven't listened to part one to hear the history of how this program came to be, do that and come back and we are going to jump right in. Hello, Mr. Loretta. almost said good morning. It's almost the afternoon.
1: Hey, part two, baby. Part two. Knock out some podcasts today. We'll see how many parts we can make this. Yes.
0: Okay. Jumping right in. This question I love because this actually is like a real life thing that we have to think about a lot. Um, this person says high producing practice with a high valuation versus small struggling practice with the potential for a very high ROI, which would you choose?
1: Man, I am torn on this because I can go either way. And so I, that's why a lot of times we'll look at these deals and let's just, let's say the high practice, let's say it's the million for, let's say it's uh, the price is a million too, but the thing makes 700 grand. So you're gonna pay a lot of money for it, but I guarantee you in the first year, all you gotta do is do the work, you make 700 grand. I always say, like, well, it's, it's really expensive, this and that. I'm like, do you have something else? So if I do have something else or we have something else that we can look at, and let's take the smaller practice. The smaller practice is 600 maybe it costs 400 but maybe it only nets 250 The question is, yeah, you paid $400,000 for it versus $1.2, so you literally saved $800,000, so congratulations. But in that example... If you kept things the same, it, maybe it grew. Maybe instead of making 250000 you made 350000 Well, on year one for me, I, I was able to make twice as much as that. And who's to say that I buy something that's successful? I can't make it even more successful. I, I can't go from $1.4 to now 1. $1.6, 1. $1.7, 1. $1.8 even bringing an associate in, right? So there's always that what-if game. There's really not a a wrong answer or a right answer here. It really just comes down to like and love the location, like and love the doctor. You can do the dentistry. It's got the equipment, the patients. It's got new patient flow. It's just, I don't know. There's there's just, like I said, there's not the right or wrong answer I,
0: here. When I read this question, I'm like, well you you asked the wrong thing high producing practice with high valuation just like you know 101 high producing does not mean highly profitable so right. that was my that's number true. one thing right yeah, like that's true. like i talked to doctors owners buyers just doctors in general they're like well you know what's the cash flow well they collect this or they produce this cuz that's the world they live in and i get it i don't really care you can produce 2 million and still only make 400,000 you know so i think that's an important component like let's not just focus on top line a very busy practice with multiple offices can still not be very profitable. And then I also think I 100% agree with you that there's no – if we assume there, this high-producing practice is profitable, I think it really depends on your personality, right? Like taking on that high-productive, profitable practice that costs a lot is a lot of debt service, and it's a lot of infrastructure and people to have to keep going versus a small practice where there's a lot of work to do, but I've definitely worked with buyers who are just like the startup go-getter mentality. I want to build something from the ground up. I want to like burn it all down and then build it back up. Well, that's a heck of a lot easier to do with a small practice. And if you have the cash flows and the ability to support that, then, and that's your personality, then like we've seen several people who have been incredibly successful doing that. There's also been the ones who just plug and play into the practice that's producing a ton and doing a great job and they're equally successful so i think it's your personality has a lot to do with it too the other thing
1: too is sometimes you buy these smaller practices you know it's got this bigger upside well a lot of times these practices also are 20 25 years old so they've got outdated equipment they got outdated furniture they've got outdated everything so yeah you bought the thing for 400 but it's only got four ops so now all of a sudden you start doing your expansion you start adding all these equipment and and upgrades and next thing you know Two, three years into it, you're doing a refinance. And next thing you know, you're $700,000 in debt. Granted, the practice now is up to a million dollars. But again, it's not like you got this thing super cheap and you're still behind the eight ball. So I just, in general, I like to buy the thing that makes a lot of money. When I read this, when I think high valuation, I will pay a high valuation when I make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely not just high top line does not equal high value. Yeah, High top line very lean overhead, lots of money. I like to pay a lot for that.
0: Yeah. How do you enforce your missions, values in an office that has been working together for prior
1: years? I'm the new owner taking over. I'm not doing anything. I'm just leaving that thing alone for the first little bit. And I'm going to make some small changes, you know, along the way. And we get people to believe in what I'm going to try to sell. And it's going to come with time. And if I don't think I have that ability to do that on my own, then I'm gonna hire a coach, consultant to help me with leadership. And I have to always recognize my weaknesses and surround myself with people or hire people to make to make me better and that's just I'm just going to stick with that. I've been doing that same thing. Yeah, you know, look at you too, how smart you are. And it's like, I've got to figure it out. I'm, I'm not the brightest here in the room, but I, I'm smart enough to hire the good people.
0: Like that. I'm not going <laughs> to argue with that, but I am going to add to that. I agree, and I also think that if you buy a practice where things are decent and maybe maybe they're not like fully, like you have this idea as a young owner of this is the kind of practice I want, and this is my mission, and these are my values, and this is kind of what I want to move towards, and you know, it's not bad, but it's just not what you envision. Okay, fine. Let's wait it out. Right. I have talked to buyers who buy a practice where there is someone who is just caustic, right? Like there's an office manager or someone who is just negative and the tone and culture of the office is just bad. And I do think you have to kind of probably make some earlier changes or you risk more to the practice, right? And we did an episode with the great Catherine Attell earlier on and she talked about, you know, from an ownership standpoint, kind of how to basically kind of figure out, you have to have, as a new owner, have to have a very clear mission of what you're going to do, and what your rules are going to be, how we're going to treat patients, how we're going to treat each other. And she said, look, at some point you have to set everyone down and say, these are the rules. This is the way this is going to run. I respect if you don't want to do that and this is your chance to like get off the bus, right? Either stay on the bus and come in the direction we're going or get off the bus, but we're rowing in different directions and that's not going to work. And I think that's an extreme example. I don't think that's something that you do right off the bat. I think it's something six months in, you've learned these personalities, you've identified the people that maybe are the ones that aren't clicking or aren't buying in, or aren't kind of adhering to the new changes. I do think you kind of have to have to do that. All that being said, You're engaging probably someone, you're talking to someone who has more experience in that than you and figuring out how best to do this. You're preparing. You're not just off the cuff emotionally going into the office one day and saying like, my way or the highway, you know, get out. It's a really thoughtful approach.
1: And look, no referrals going back on Catherine here, but I love Catherine. I I truly think she is just a fantastic human and just a wonderful, wonderful dental leader. So as you go into ownership, and if there are some issues like that that you feel in the leadership and coaching standpoint, she's flat out amazing. You can just hire her by the hour. You can do Zoom calls with her. She just gets right down to the problem and really coaches you on what to say and how to say it. She's a great teacher for both of us and, and even on the public speaking side, but she's just a, a communication coach. So, Yeah. On big problems like that, again, don't try to do that on your own.
0: Yeah. What is the biggest challenge you see with dentists in running a successful dental practice? I'm interested in your answer. I have my own.
1: Oh, my God. They don't get out of their own way sometimes. <laughs> I mean, they're always looking for this secret ingredient. What book do I need to read? What podcast should I be listening to? I mean, I think if they focus on clinical and just be the best freaking clinician, I would love investing in leadership. Because I do think there's a part of this, getting people to buy into what you believe and getting them to follow, I think is absolutely critical. So I would say it's investing in counseling. There could be financial counseling. It could be leadership counseling. It could be clinical counseling. It's team counseling, you know, as well. So it's just, it's the ability to recognize that you need to hire those types of people that you typically don't have all the 20 plus year experience in and saying, this is a weakness. And I'm gonna surround that and then be able to again go back and just be the best clinician that you can be.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I would add though, I think it doesn't mean hiring people to do the things you're not good at. Don't don't hear that and think that means you get to disengage from those pieces because you're still the owner of the business. And the biggest hurdle I think I see in owners who are selling their business are, are those that don't understand their business. They didn't they've basically allocated their accounting and bookkeeping to someone else and never looked at the financials. They don't know how checks get to the bank. They don't know, you know, what patients paperwork they fill out. You know, like you cannot be responsible for those things and not be the one who sets the process, but still actually understand what goes on. And I think that's a challenge because we're, you know, most dentist clinical is where we live or where you live. But you have to have your hand in the other pots enough to be able to have control of it. Because if you lose control inside of that, then that's when things happen and you don't know what's going on to know when something's broken.
1: You've done a fabulous job on your team, but this is something that I hear other successful dentists is you want Mm cross-training, you know, the entire way of of that dental practice. You need people from the back to understand, you know, what's happening in the front, the front, what's happening in the back. You don't want just the one person quote-unquote the office person that handles all the bookkeeping all this you need cross training there for risk purposes Mm -hmm. and just for better practices two people are just going to be smarter than one well and this
0: goes back to that original question right like what are your missions and values and how do you do those everyone in your office should be working towards the same goal their contribution to that goal is going to be different right like a clinical person's contribution to your production goal is going to be different than the office managers but we're all striving towards the same goals and missions. And I think as a leader, if you've done a good job of this is what we're aiming for, this is what we're trying to get to, this is how you're going to help us, this is how you're going to help us. And this, and, and none of this works unless we're all pulling in the same direction. I think that's a really big point.
1: I mean, you hit these numbers, you know, weekly, monthly. This is how 401ks and profit sharings, you know, get done. This is the insurance that I'm paying you, I want to continue to pay you know as an elective this is the same thing we would do every year at Christmas when we do these Christmas bonuses we set goals for with our consultant if we hit these numbers you know that we would do the Disney cruise or whatever that may be they need to know you know kind of what's what's in it for them so they'll continue to strive so yes I agree
0: I'm going to connect these next two questions because they're very similar so the first one is what is the best way to tell if a doctor is willing to sell their practice to you and is not stringing you along? Okay. With what are red flags for owners and buyers? I think these are very closely related.
1: Look, if, if you're the buyer or the seller, I'll speak to the buyer first. You're looking for the seller that is absolutely all in. They need to be willing to share uh, their financials, their tax returns, profit and loss statement. Here's a new patient flow. Here's Come shadow me at the office. I'm not afraid that my team sees you. This I want this to be a true partnership. Here is my CPA. Here is my transition team. Here's the associate agreement. Here's how much I'm going to pay you. Here's the numbers of the practice. Here's the numbers that we need to hit that I don't lose money. Here's the numbers I need to hit where it makes sense you know, for a buy-in. Here's how the valuation is going to take place. Here's the attorney that's going to execute you know, the documents. In the associate agreement, I'm going to outline all the transition goals that we just set. And it's literally just like, oh, my God, I can't believe what's happening here. That is an amazing seller who's literally dictating a plan for you. And so the red flags are just the opposite. Someone that just says, come on in, we'll talk about it in two years. Hope it works out. So just somebody with a very, very thorough plan.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, I think someone who is thorough plan but also very open and consistent with kind of their communications and is understanding too of where the other side comes from. I hesitate to say that because these are emotional communications and it's hard to always kind of have the perspective of where the other side's coming from, but the transitions that we see that go the smoothest are generally those who can communicate with each other, who have really well thought out plans, goals, goals, They're not kind of going back and forth and changing things consistently. A big red flag that we see often is someone who's gone through several buyers, several brokers. It's not always a red flag. I hate saying anything's a red flag. I always like yellow flags. It's something to pause and understand why. But those are things, the biggest one being the point you made, but then additionally kind of just those very obvious of, I'm not willing to share anything with you. You know, making you kind of commit to a bunch of things before I'm willing to be as open with you. Just that transparency and communication on both sides is really important.
1: One last thing I'd love to, again, these are relationships. This is call it maybe a two-year relationship from associate to partner, or maybe it's a two-year relationship before they sell 100%. Is the constant meetings? Every time we finish a meeting, you know, call it on the quarter or the week or whatever it is. What is our next meeting? And so for our associates listening or not owners It's on you to make sure that you're pushing these meetings on a regular basis. So you're in those initial meetings, you're taking the notes, you're repeating what you and the doctor have decided on, and then from there, what is our next meeting? And so now the next meeting, you should be looking at your doctor production numbers, doctor one, two, and hygiene. You should be looking at where the practice was before you got there. Where it is now. Should be looking at is this practice more profitable? You want this thing to be more profitable. You want him or her to be more successful in this practice. So
0: just had to. Had to tell you to stop beating on the table. I know. Joellen's I get so excited. I know. I get so I know.
1: excited on this. My emotions and stories are going through my head. <laughs> Too I much. was beating the table, and producer Jelen and Joellen's like, "That's not going to sound good. That's going to cost some extra editing dollars." Because I like to,
0: I always like to go positive. We're going to switch from red flags to what are the best qualities if someone's looking for a partner. Okay, what are the qualities that they're looking at? I think this is kind of a personal question. But but I think generally we've worked with enough partner groups and people and buyers and sellers to understand kind of some general things. What are your qualities? I don't know. It's just that you,
1: it's like when you meet somebody, you interview them and you just kind of fall in love with them. You know, like you just love them. You just seem like they are a communicator. They're open and they just seem like high integrity. You're kind of looking at them behind the scenes. So you're, You know, just like you're on a date, you're looking at Instagram and social media and who these people are. You're looking to see that they're charitable. You're looking to see their family guy or gal. You're, you know, you're trying to figure out who these people are. You're looking at their team and, and going, they, they have seniority. They've been there a long time. They, they look happy. You know, the, the practice. So there's a lot of things to me that I think you're, you're truly looking at. It's not just one thing or just the numbers. I, I really want to get to know this person and feel like I'm going to be better off with them.
0: Yeah. I think our process and what we recommend is that you got to have the first date, the call, the Zoom, whatever it might look like to kind of meet them and learn the basics of them. But we highly recommend spending time going to a restaurant with spouses or, you know, coffee or meeting somewhere, like really spending time to get to know the person. Now, there's two sides of this for you all. I mean, there's the clinical side and the personal side and the, you know, business side and I'm of the mindset that I've seen partner groups where two people are exactly the same person and it's great. And I've seen partner groups where two people are the exact same person and they're best friends, but business-wise they have a really hard time because neither one of them will step up and do the hard thing and they, you know, are worried, you know, there's a lot of pieces of this that are friendship and personal and can I hang out with you? And then business-wise, are we going to complement each other in what we have to run this business? And I think it takes a long time to kind of understand that. And I think it does take sometimes some trial and error and asking really hard questions. Like communication, I think, is the biggest piece and being able to ask kind of devil's advocate type of questions and then hear the response and have some like good back and forth and then be able to be like, okay, cool, let's go do whatever. I mean, I think that's an important part of being a long-term partner with someone.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's I, it's certainly a different answer too when we're thinking partnership. I mean, yeah. partnership, I really, we need to nail it. And if it's a 100% walk away and they're going to be there for six months, and I don't mind them uh, not being exactly. Yeah, grin like and bear me. it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm going to bite my lip. Yeah. So that's when it makes a lot of money. I bite your lip when it makes a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> kick the old guy out. We're going to kick him out. Don't worry.
0: What are the, there's a couple of pro and con questions. So we'll do one of these um, and then we'll, Probably wrap it up for this part. Pros and cons of working as an associate first and then buying the practice yeah. versus buying the practice right away without ever being in the practice.
1: I mean, I love the fact you're reducing all the risks by being the associate. There's, so I absolutely love that. You know, typically, you know, I tell you is, you know, when you get out of school, if you can come across the perfect practice that's super busy, that's going to push you clinically and push all a lot of new patients to you and, you know, it's going to be very productive, and you're going to make money there, and it leads to partnership. Amazing. I mean, this is like, I can't believe you found that, but, you know, if, honestly, I just want you to be busy, (laughs) and then, you know, to make a lot of money, get the clinical set, that's kind of like my goal number one. So that's amazing if you do come across that, that they do have a partnership plan. If it's a situation where you worked in another practice, I think you learn from that. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to learn that, you know, if you worked at corporate office, and maybe they had corporate training, you may have you know, did some CE that maybe you wouldn't have taken with that doctor. You would have learned, I don't know, diff- the different software systems. You would have learned different, the different hand pieces they use. You would learn different clinical equipment and, and technology that perhaps that practice doesn't have. So sometimes I think that's, you know, a little beneficiary that you got to date a little bit, you know, because then you appreciate what you got. Or you take something from that previous relationship and now bring it to the new practice.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that there's certainly practices you don't have the opportunity to do that in. And I think there's plenty of people who buy practices they have never been able to be an associate in. And I'm sure all of them set post-buying would have said, hey, you know, had I worked in the practice, I probably would have noticed X, Y, or Z. And, you know, I would think most of those, at least the ones I've talked to, it wouldn't have changed their decision to buy the practice. It just was one of those things where like, oh, it would have been nice to know that before, but the practice wasn't big enough. They lived across the country, yep. you know, it wasn't an option. I mean, that to be honest, there's a lot of risk the seller takes on letting you come in as an associate before you buy. You could come in and not buy. Um, right. Or you could come in and interrupt things and they could lose money and you could walk away and then now they could be left, you know, trying to find someone else. So there's definitely risk on both sides, which I think is a con. It makes it harder legally and just kind of risk-wise for both of you. But I mean, I think if you have the opportunity to do that, I think you see things in a little bit of a different light.
1: Yeah, I mean, the associate's always thinking, what's going to happen? Because I help grow the practice, but you're not thinking from the ownership standpoint, is what happens if I'm the owner and I bring you in and clinically you're not sound? Yep. You got a bad attitude. Yep. Uh, you don't show up on time. There's a lot of things that are at risk, and I, you know, now I've put your name on the door and I have hired the assistant. I have done this work and you're the second associate that I'm going through and now I'm over to, you know, I'm losing money, you know, along this journey. So like I said, there are risks on both sides. What you're trying to do is figure out what the upside is for both of you and hopefully we'll plan and have a talk about it.
0: Yep. Okay. Well, I think that wraps up uh, part two of our Q&A series. Thanks for joining us on this episode 84 of Transition Talk. And as always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk whenever you listen to your podcast. Until next time.
1: Awesome.